We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. We have a packed Wednesday show for you. Big bit of mix of hoops and football. Ole Miss opened the season last night with a win over New Orleans in basketball, and then we'll get to a bit of an AM preview. But first, we got former Andy Kennedy staffer. Bracken Ray, owner of the most famous assist in basketball history. Uh, for those of you out there that knew the story, uh, he, Bracken was the assist man on what just later been called by the history books, the shot heard around the world. Uh, I'm mostly kidding. That would be my high school basketball mishap where I would. Well, that's probably a story for another day for some of the younger, uh, newer listeners, I should say. But uh, basically at a high school basketball mishap where uh, I confused the entire opposing fan base. Uh, of thinking that I had some sort of disorder or disability, but we'll, we'll get into that another day. Anyway, Bracken, former Andy, Bracken Ray, former Andy Kennedy staffer on to talk what he saw last night and really do a season preview type of thing. The season kind of snuck up on me with the podcast schedule. Normally it started like the, from what I used to the basketball season used to start on Friday. Um, and then you would go into whatever football weekend and that's just kind of how it went, but started on Tuesday. And so we did like a season preview type of thing. So I would, I would encourage you to look at this as a season outlook with a 40 minute sample size, rather than us making sweeping assumptions about all of these players and this team after 40 minutes of basketball, that is certainly not what we were trying to do. And definitely did not do that. So look at it as a season preview with the 40 minute sample size. Then we will go to Travis Brown. He is the Texas A&M reporter for the Eagle. If you listen to the season preview series where we went through every opponent or Ole Miss's schedule, I uh, talked to someone who covered them. He was on back in uh, early August. He actually came on the day that uh, we talked about the great quarterback battle between Calzada and Haynes King. And then as I dropped the podcast, they announced Haynes King as the starter. So that was a nice one. Anyway, we talked a lot of A&M stuff, the difference uh, in Zach Calzada running game, getting going, a lot of different stuff. Anyway, buckle up. We've got a great show. But before we get to that, I want to remind you, podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Glad you asked. So the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. Need to check these guys out. Need to get their picks. You know why? Because they hit it 69% in college football this week. Nice. Plus 6.3 units, 11 and 5 week. Six and two in the NFL. So that's you followed their picks this weekend. You went 17 and seven. 
I guarantee you out there, most of you have either just had to pay the man or about to have to pay the man, and you didn't go 17 and 7 because you wouldn't be having to pay the man if you went 17 and 7. You need to check them out. They're going to have a picks package that fits your price range, destroying it on NFL this week, destroying it in college football. Clearly, 11 and 5, I would say that's pretty good. And they are going to lead you to profit more consistently than anyone else, particularly your own dumb brain. I say that not as an insult because my own dumb brain loses me money. So check them out. They got month-long packages, season-long. I'd recommend just going the year-long past guy fully in all sports. It'll pay itself back and then some. But if you're looking for something a little bit uh, cheaper and more affordable, whatever your price range is, they're going to have a picks package to fit it and your preferred sport. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Absolutely the best gambling handicapping website in the industry. The results speak for themselves. 69%. I didn't even want them to go 12 and 4. 11 and 5 is 69%. That is the perfect way to cap your weekend. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. When you make your picks package, use the promo code RIPPY. Uh, We had some dudes a while back not checking in with the promo code. You're just wasting free money and it lets them know you sent us so it's a uh it's a nice two-way street there check them out skyboxsportspicks.com podcast also brought to you by lb's university avenue across from kroger go see greg rippy Wright special right now if you're a subscriber to the rippy rights newsletter that's rippyrights.substack.com get a newsletter for me three to five times a week that's completely free and discounted meats you get a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a five dollar pack of sausage that's one hell of a way to kickstart your football watching weekend that would have made it even more perfect uh, as you watched a great slate of college games on Saturday, maybe you're more of a Sunday guy. I don't know. But check them out. Go find all the specials that they have and all the great, great food. Lane Train special, bacon wrap filet, all kinds of awesome sausages, seafood. Greg's always got something incredible cooking up there. You need to go check them out. Don't go to Kroger. They want to, Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. And LB's is the best place in the world to get meat. It is awesome. Crab stuffed mushrooms. I'm headed to Oxford this weekend. Can't wait to stop by LB's because it is an absolute delight. And Oxford is lucky to have it. Check him out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Last but not least, podcast also brought to you by Manscaped. That's right. Manscaped, all MPW digital podcasts. You need to join the more than 2 million men who trust Manscaped because they make precision tools for your jewels. It's time to make the better. It's time to make me time in the bath, me time, your favorite time in the bathroom by choosing Manscaped. Lawnmower 4.0 model, got a nice uh, LED light charger on that thing. Heard the 70s were a wild time, but Manscaped is here to make sure things don't get out of control down there. You want to be groomed, you want to be kempt, just don't want to be, like I said, out of control down there. Manscaped is going to ensure you have uh, some nice, smooth boys. So check them out, manscaped.com. Use the promo code MPW and you get 20% off any purchase. Check them out. I was born for this ad read. All right, buckle up. Here is Bracken Ray. All right, we now welcome on former Andy Kennedy staffer, the owner of the most famous assist in the history of basketball, Bracken Ray. Ole Miss, we're coming at you about, what, 20 minutes after Ole Miss uh, season opener over New Orleans ends. Ole Miss wins 82-61. A lot of guys played, a lot of interesting stuff. It is the first game early November. What's up, man? How are you? Man, not a whole lot, not a whole lot. Yeah, it's good that uh, basketball is finally here. Got a lot of good games on tonight as well. I mean, I had a couple screens going for this. Got Bama and La Tech playing right now, which low-key is a fun matchup for basketball nerds like myself, but uh, doing well. How about you? 
pretty good. Watch the got home from work. Watch the old Miss game. I'm gonna let you get out of here before we miss too much of uh, Kentucky and Duke. This it sounds like no tune-up needed for you. You already got multiple screens up. You're in full-on college hoops junkie mode. And credit to college basketball, like when they open the season, it opens with the bang, right? Like you got the square, Madison Square Garden deal every year, but it seems like every opening night there's six, seven games that are remotely interesting if you're pretty invested in the sport. Like the slate never sucks week one. I know most every sport does that, but I like the showcases at the beginning of the year. I think for as many flaws as you have in college hoops, I think kind of the early season showcases where you get to see not only this top level talent, but really good teams play each other early in the year when you don't know a lot about them is really fascinating. No doubt. And, you know, I think a lot of that's intentional as well with us being kind of in the back half of regular season for college football as well. Um, so kind of generating some of that interest, having some blue bloods play each other. Like I said, with like the Bama La Tech game, a really good hot mid-major game um, as well. So, yeah, looking at the slate today, there were like six or seven that really caught my eye. And um, it's a good first night of college basketball. It's, it's great that there's some sense of normalcy and uh, watching, you know, some of the student sections and stuff like that for some of these games. It's really excited to see that energy back in the arenas as well. Yeah, second that, dude. Watching those games in Cameron last year when there's just no one in there. And I'm not even the biggest, like, Cameron crazy guy. But, like, I just – I think it sucks. Like, it's not even close to the same. That uh, that Law Tech team, I mean, I caught them – I was one of the tens of people that went to this old Miss NIT game out in Frisco last year just because it was close to buy. I, I didn't even have plans to go. Someone texted me right after work and was like, hey, these tickets are, like, nine bucks. You want to ride out to Frisco? I was like, sure, why not? That was a pretty good team. And from what I remember, they had a decent bit coming back. The fact that that's kind of a sneaky mid-major game is not shocking to me. They were pretty good. Yeah, they've got a kid named Kenneth Lofton. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's like 6'7", six, 6'8", six, he's like 270, 280. But he played on the USA Basketball, maybe U20 team this year and had some really good games for them. Um, I've told a lot of people that he's like a sneaky pick to be an All-American this year, as crazy oh. as that sounds. Um, and he's not a guy that's going to play in the NBA, but he's going to be a really good player. And uh, I think that, you know, f- for him playing in the Conference USA, I've already given AK some hell that, hey, that, that's going to be one that y'all got to get into foul trouble early on if y'all want to uh, walk home with the W there. Hell yeah. AK's got a pretty good squad as well over there uh, in, in Birmingham. I'm interested to see what that kind of looks like this year. Ole Miss got our first look at them this year. Uh, again, they played a bunch of guys. There's I always hesitate, particularly with Ole Miss, like kind of these first four games before they go to whatever tournament they're going to play to cast, you know, too much judgment. And I guess that's more of a writing thing. I hated having to write like huge notebooks and make sweeping assumptions after one game, but it was some fascinating stuff tonight. Full disclosure, like you were saying, them catching the kind of back half of college football season, I had intended to text you earlier in the week and we like do some sort of preview or something like that, because in my mind, and honestly, because I'm a big boy adult now, I started keeping a calendar. I thought this game was on Friday because every year I was in school and covering it after Ole Miss, unless I'm mistaking, mistaken, someone correct me on that a while back. The games, like, it always started on Friday, so this really kind of snuck up on me. But I think this works out better because we can kind of do, like, a season preview type deal with the one-game sample size. What uh, Before we just kind of dive too much into it, what do you think overall tonight? Anything stand out in particular? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, you know, with this group this year, you know, what you really hear from it is, hey – 
last year we had a really good defensive team, struggled offensively, struggled with perimeter shooting. And one thing that I don't think I talked enough, uh, talked about enough is the ability to pe- uh, beat people off the bounce last year um, and create driving lanes, having straight line drivers who could get past defenders. And so one thing that I think that this staff really wants to do this year is to get out and transition and play a little bit faster. Um, what, what we're going to see early on in this year against UNO and Charleston Southern and, you know, a lot of these low to mid-major teams is I think they are going to try to play more tempo. You didn't see a ton of it tonight, uh, but I do think they're going to try to play tempo uh, this year and where Kermit's got to find the balance, and I think he can because he's done it in the past, is play fast, play slow. And what I mean by that is, hey, there's going to be nights you're going to get out and transition and beat the hell out of people, um, similar to tonight winning by 21. But also there's going to be games in conference play when that rolls around. Your preseason picked eighth or ninth in the league. We'll see what happens there. But there are going to be nights where other teams are going to have better athletes than you. We can already tell from this roster. So do you want to go get in track meets with the Kentuckys of the world, the Arkansas of the world? So they're going to have to be able to evolve and adapt to playing slow as well and playing in the half court, playing at their own place and uh, playing defensively as well as they did last year. So, you know, tonight looking at it, um, first 10 minutes of the game, they got off to a pretty slow start. And I didn't get to dive into the exhibition game a whole lot, but it sounded like a little bit of that too. Can't read into that too much with how they do lineups on that. But they played really slow. But one thing that I think, changed the game and busted the game open was the one three one with about 10 minutes left in the first half. That's what really uh, changed the game for them. Uh, Crowley had a really good game, really good first half as well. I think in general, and I think Kermit would admit this as well, when you're playing a team like a UNO or a Charleston Southern, you want to play as much man as possible early in the year and, and see how good you are at it. Um, I don't think you want to get into playing that one three one a lot, but they kind of busted it open. And then in the second half, didn't have to play it as much. Um, your, your first couple of games going to be a little bit sloppy. There was times where that was tonight, the case too, but two to one assist to turnover ratio as well to end the game. So, you know, I thought that this all in all was about what expected. Uh, I always joke with my gambling buddies that, you know, Ken Palm can every now and then be a good, indicator of what games look like and they predicted like 83 to 59 final score actual 82 to 61 pretty good about what the metrics yeah so about what the metrics uh said too so you know about what you expected out of this group tonight um you know all in all there yeah you mentioned the 131 and that was another note i had written down you hit on a couple of things already that i had in this little notebook that i was sitting there watching the game with i thought part of that too because it is i mean that's just kind of what a lot of coaches do particularly against inferior competition is you just play man up and kind of see who who can do what and honestly maybe more importantly who can't do what when it comes to man defense yeah. but some of that had to be a little bit old miss got off to a slow start offensively i think when they went to it old miss it was around the time they got down 17 to 11 or something. Some of that was probably, he knew they were going to be overwhelmed by it and probably wanting to kind of get Ole Miss in the little bit of a rhythm offensively by creating some easy baskets in transition off turnovers, which no is doubt. exactly what happened. I imagine there was a little bit of offensive thought into the decision to play the one, three, one for that kind of 
seemed like about a six minute stretch or whatever it was there where Ole Miss finally created separation and not have it, you know, be 29, 28 or something at halftime. Yeah. And you know, it, it's a, that's a really good point because one thing that this group, when you look at them, Hey, they did not have many perimeter scorers last year. And from a recruiting standpoint this year, they brought in two to three really good transfers, but they didn't fill that gap either. And so you're right. I think that from a mentality standpoint, getting some guys like a Morrell or an Austin Crowley, some of these guys, some easy buckets early in the game can kind of get them going a little bit and small sample size. And, you know, I, I still don't see this team being a great perimeter shooting team just because of the Jimmy's and Joe's, so to speak, but 41% from the three point line tonight. Um, I think a lot of that is there. There's a mental game to that as well, where you could bust out and transition, get some, easy buckets going and kind of loosen up a little bit when those shots uh, and those opportunities come about. You mentioned being able to play different ways and that was their struggle last year. I mean, they, they, they weren't very dynamic at the guard position in terms of being able to get past people. I think when we did pods pretty like somewhat frequently last season, it was a lot of horizontal dribbling. The guys were not able to get vertical and get downhill on top of that. And I think this probably relates to it a little bit and, Given how they play tonight, I'm speaking from a pure body standpoint, and really it's probably worth noting as we get further into this, if you're out there listening, this I would consider this more of like a season preview type of thing instead of everything being based. Like this is all of this, like that we guess discuss is certainly not based off 40 minutes against University of New Orleans, more like big picture outlook stuff as they wade into the season. But the who they played tonight and what this roster looks like now. With the exception of the two ends, and by that I mean the seven-footer in Nasir Brooks, and then I guess the other end would be um, would be Ruffin at five foot nine or whatever he is. This team and Joiner probably is more in the Ruffin category. This team seems like they could have the ability to be pretty malleable. Everyone else in that stand, like it within that they play tonight, is kind of within that six four to six eight six nine ish range. And at the exception of Brooks, everyone field played a little bit on the perimeter and felt somewhat comfortable, looked somewhat comfortable doing so. I would say maybe the biggest surprise in that was Sammy Hunter. Now, it wasn't always great. I think he got called for a travel on a shot fake that I imagine no one will bite on uh, once they start playing teams of the pulse type of thing. But it seems like they have a chance to not only play different ways offensively. You mentioned go fast, go slow, but play, I guess, match up better with a lot of different teams. And I think that could be important in what is a pretty loaded, particularly on the top in SEC. It seems like they have some malleability and versatility that they maybe didn't have last year, either where it seemed a little more rigid because of the lack of depth in really the both the front and backcourt in some areas. They just seem like they have different body types this year. Yeah, you know, and I think Kermit's kind of recruited for that, um, trying to have longer guys, uh, long athletic guys. And not only does that help you offensively, but also in things like a one three one that can really help you as well. Um, when you look offensively last year, though, this team, the first 10 minutes of each game, really played through Romello White. They played inside out. He was pretty efficient down there as well. Um and but then also they kind of did this four out one in or even at times five out offense and a lot of uh, dribble handoffs, dribble at back basket cuts, et cetera. You know, I think the thing that I'm most interested to see this year 
you've still got some guys on the wing who I wish were better at beating people off the bounce. But, you know, the, the variable here that we didn't have last year is somebody um, like a Ruffin who's got a lot of flexibility and a lot of wiggle to his game. Um, we haven't seen, you know, somebody like that in, in a while. And I think they're trying to ease him back into it. He obviously got hurt a month or two ago. But I thought tonight that he did a good job at times of um, seeing the floor well and, you know, making the open pass. He's quick as hell. Uh, he can beat people off the dribble and he's got really good handles. And when you're a freshman McDonald's All-American, a lot of times the mentality your first game is, hey, I'm going to go get a bucket. I'm going to go get a bucket. But there were times where I thought he played poised and mature and beat people off the dribble, saw a man coming up and, and made the extra pass. So that's another, you know, thing in this offense that to keep an eye on that we didn't have last year, like I said, I think it's going to take him a couple weeks to really get him ingrained and, and comfortable in this offense with how much time he missed. But um, something that I'm super excited about to see uh, with his game as well. Might as well get right into it then, because that was something I was going to ask you was, so he had a couple, particularly towards the end of the game when they had him bringing the ball up the court, he had a couple of turnovers. One or two of them were on A to B passes. One of them, they got the ball back. It was an over and back that wasn't. But then he got stripped a couple of times. But he was also dealing with the – it looked like he jammed his finger or something in his hand. Oh. It's a guy that coming out of high school you knew had pretty good handles. And usually guys that size do because, I mean, if you're that small and you don't have a firm handle on the basketball, there's not a whole lot you can do at this level, it seems like, unless you're just an unbelievable shooter. But so do you, would you probably attribute the, the couple of turnovers? They're not, again – uh, everything should be prefaced with November against New Orleans. Would you attribute it more to that? Because uh, kind of the read on him coming out of school is that kid had pretty tight handles. Yeah, no, he's definitely got tight handles. And I think this coaching staff is going to challenge him to, you know, have better vision and to make the right reads and stuff like that. Um, he, you're right. He looked a little jammed up for a little bit. I was surprised for a second that he came back in the game, but I think that's a good thing. Um, but I, I do think that, they are going to really rely on him to bust this offense open at times. Um, they may run, you know, in the past, we've seen a lot of these continuation uh, offenses and they may rely on him at times this year to run some more quick hitters than they have in the past, maybe giving him some flat ball screens in the open, maybe letting him ISO at times as well. Um, but I think they've got to work their way into that for him. And, you know, on the opposite end of the court, I, I do think, when the opposing team has bigger guards in the game, he's going to be a defensive liability. So a lot of times when he was in the game, and I don't know, I don't think this was intentional tonight, but a lot of times when he was in the game, we ran one, three, one. And I think, you know, going into conference play, just like some pass guards at Ole Miss, um, they're going to try to hide him in the one, three, one as well. So we'll kind of see there and keep an eye on that. So I was the way I was going to frame it originally is what do you think he needs to do to consistently stay on the floor? But you may kind of make, and you have much better read on this team than I do, particularly coming out in this early in the season. You think that's pretty much a given uh, kind of give, I maybe particularly given the lack of depth they have in the, the front or excuse me, the backcourt. I'm just curious. So at a guy at that size, I think you're right in terms of what he can potentially do for them offensively. How much do you worry, and maybe this is where some of the potential malleability will help with this team, when they get into SEC play, 
and I know college basketball is a little bit different, but how much do you think he will be hunted on the defensive end? He's not a bad defender. He's a little quick and a little twitchy, but it seems yep. like when he ends up on a bigger guard, particularly on the wing, sometimes he struggles uh, at least a couple of times tonight. It looked like he struggled kind of, I guess, defending against the drive a little bit. Do you worry at all potentially about him being hunted defensively when they get into some of these games against uh, superior town in particular? No doubt, no doubt. And, I, I mean, I think it, it depends on the matchup, obviously. I mean, like Bama with Quinterly and Shackelford, those are kind of undersized guards. But one, one, two positives I'll give him is I don't think effort's an issue um, for him. And a, a lot of times that's half the battle defensively at the college level. And the second thing is I do think he has fairly quick hands um, as well. And on the ball, you know, that can lead to steals at times too. So I think it's just – you know, it's a educational thing, but also at some point it'd be good for him to bulk up a little bit as well. Because what I worry about with him is if you're ever playing a team whose smallest guard is like six five, I mean, did they start running guard post ISOs for him? You see that a lot at the NBA level, and it's trickled down to college a little bit too. So if he ever gets going and offensively, you know, turns into like a Jared Harper type. Well, what if on the other end of the floor they're just post isoing him and you're switching baskets back and forth? That's kind of what I wonder and in, concerned with him uh, really early on, you know, for his future. But he's a great player, and like I said, effort. I don't think effort's going to be the issue on the de- defensive side of the floor. Just kind of bouncing around to a couple of different notes in this game because it was interesting. What so Crowley ends up leading the team? I think what he had 13 points, oh. and you mentioned that stretch where Ole Miss goes to the one, three run and created some separation. The really the offensive end of that was after a really slow start, uh, particularly from perimeter shooting standpoint, Crowley comes in and hits. I think he hit three in a row. Maybe he missed one in there. He only took four for the yeah. game, but that really, he, he made three triples in a row um, and really got Ole Miss going from an offensive standpoint after they were slow shooting night. He was uh what do you, what do you kind of see his role being on this team this year? Because he's an interesting case. He had a bad year last year. If there was, correct me if I'm wrong here. Do you think if there was someone that they felt like they had a chance to get that was an immediate impact guard, he may have been the next guy on the chopping block from a processing standpoint, or do you think they were keeping him the whole time? Well, <laughs> tough to say. Question. I know it's always I, fluid. I, it's the, it's tough to say, but I mean, I, you know, I think from a guard standpoint, if they could have gone out and gotten a, you know, career 37, 38% three point shooter. I mean, I think that that, you know, is, is somewhat of a take that could be realistic. I, I think for him and Sammy Hunter kind of falls in the same category. We talked about this back in September. My real question year three for both of them is what is your identity? Right. What is your right. identity as a player? And we can't figure that out. And Curley's had some good games. He, in his career, he's had a few games like this in the past. Um, for Sammy Hunter, it's more of, I think Sammy has a little bit too much of like a score, uh, scoring offensive mindset where he's athletic enough to go do some dirty things uh, that could, you know, get him on the floor. Some of those dirty little things that uh, get him on the floor. Because if you look at, um, you know, like Robert Allen, Robert Allen's not the most talented guy in the world, but Robert Allen played 21 minutes tonight because he does a lot of the small things that are getting him on the floor. I think they're looking for a little bit more of that out of Sammy Hunter. Can he be a guy that is a 
force rebounding for them. It'd be a straight up effort thing, right? So those two going forward, that's kind of, I think, what the coaching staff is looking for with them. But Austin tonight, I mean, 13 points on five of six shooting, four rebounds, four assists. I mean, in 20 minutes, he, he played about as well as he could have. Um, would love to see that trend, you know, continue, but also such a small sample size to really, you know, measure it and say that it could be something, you know, long term as well. I almost hate doing this, but it is just kind of fascinating. The starting lineup tonight, they go what? Crowley, they go Joyner, Crowley, Allen, Rodriguez, Brooks. So if you want to do that in a one through five order, that's Joyner, Crowley, Rodriguez, three, Allen, four, Brooks, five. Did anything about that uh, surprise you? No, nothing about that surprised me. And look, I mean, I think that, you know, Kermit, is is always going to do he's gonna he he likes to shuffle early a little bit but if you start seeing something like this down the road with this team that could be more of a a statement um we've seen i guess it was year one maybe i think it was year one where he started dc davis for a game right who's a walk-on um so he's going to do some statement stuff i don't necessarily think that's what tonight was i think he's going to mess with this lineup a little bit see what fits um and i think that he had a you know, I think he started Robert Allen in the exhibition as well. So um, that, nothing too much to read into there. A lot of those guys between the starting five and maybe the next two or three off the bench played pretty similar minutes. So um, nothing too crazy to read into there. When we get down toward January and I'm getting into the sweeping assumption category, do you think that's breakfield spot at the four to lose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, – I think for Breakfield, if he's not starting, it's it's a statement start of Robert Allen over him from Kermit. I think there's a message that's being sent there more than anything. Breakfield's a more talented guy. Obviously, he was a four or five star coming out of high school. Robert Allen, though, is going to get some serious minutes this year. Um, I think he's going to play a lot of four. And I also think there's going to be times where they're going to put him at the five as well. Uh, Brooks ever gets in foul trouble or whatever the case may be. So I, I do think he's going to play a lot of minutes as well, but Breakfield's definitely the more talented, and he also has the ability to stretch the floor uh, more than Robert Allen does as well. That's And that's something they lacked last year was front court depth, and that's been an issue at times for Ole Miss really ever since Kermit's been here for the most part. That might not be completely fair in some years, but – Honestly, my memory is escaping me a little bit, but it seemed like there was a decent drop off when Romello went off the floor last year. And that was kind of probably as good enough a transition in just the front court in general. So Nasir Brooks, you obviously knew a hell of a lot more about him than I did, but the things, the initial things that just watching him tonight struck me were two things. One, this guy's played a decent bit of college basketball. He's a smart player that is usually in, at least tonight, was in the right spot. I don't know, just some of the intangible things that he does, particularly in the defensive end, you can tell he's played a decent bit of college basketball. And there's nothing, I guess, per, perception-wise or processing-wise that's a little too quick for him. And then the only other note that I had, he made a couple of moves um, in the post. Uh, from an offensive standpoint that were that looked a lot better and a lot more crisp and maybe I hate saying the word skilled um, having watched the guy played for 40 minutes plus some like highlight stuff when they he announced he was coming to miss but like he showed a little bit more offensively than it would have the basic kind of look into him would show you that he had what did you think of how he played tonight 
clearly the rim protection seems as good as advertised just in terms of yeah. an ability standpoint, but he seems like he kind of offers at least he's not a zero offensively, which I thought could be a possibility. Yeah. No, great point. And like from a defensive standpoint, it's crazy to think that this has been almost a decade now, but he's probably our best front court defensive big since Reggie Butner. I mean, Ooh, you know, I like that. you know, think about, you know, how, how long ago that was completely different player. Obviously he's a seven footer, but, yeah, I mean, we, we talked about this, you know, in September as well. Like, this is not Dom out there offensively, right? This this is, But it's not Romello White either. Um, and what I mean by that is if you watch film on him throughout his college career, he's a pretty good guy back to the basket. And this will be a very, you know, common sense, obvious statement here. But he's pretty good back to the basket when he has an average to undersized big uh, playing behind him. I don't think he's a guy that, like Romello, you know, teams will ever front or dig on or double, um, but he's confident. I also don't think Ole Miss will play a ton inside out with him like they did Romello last year. Yeah, and that's quite, frankly, quite, quite, quite frankly, if, if they did, I think they would have started that tonight a little bit if they wanted to play through him. But, no, I mean, he's a guy that, you know, he went for 11 and 4 tonight. I mean, if he's a guy that gives you, you know, eight and six every game, I mean, that, that's pretty good. But I think he's a super important piece to this team because of his rim presence, but also because of his experience. And, uh, you know, they they talk about they rave about how he's a leader as well. So really good piece for Ole Miss here and definitely, I, I think, a step or two up defensively in the front court from what they had last year as well. How just based on everything you know about him at this point, how – versatile do you think he's he could be from a playing him every night standpoint because and i'm uh, we can get into this at the tail end of this but just across the sec if you're going against smaller more athletic lineups do you think there are nights where they won't be able to play him as much or do you think he's decent enough defensively or quick enough defensively to kind of survive having to go short stretches guarding someone on the perimeter or do you think there will be nights where they can't play him as much that's a really good question. I think the main thing is if they ever play a team that's undersized and, you know, goes uh, five out on the perimeter, I think the main thing for him is he's going to have to give people a gap, right? He's not, he's not super slow, but I don't think that he is uh, super – I guess he, he's, he's a little too stiff at times maybe to be guarding people out on the perimeter. Um, so, you know, it's go bearish from people, the standpoint of this argument, right? Just from this lens. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it brings up an interesting point, coach Rippy over here. It's like, Hey, maybe you go, <laughs> maybe you go five out against him because then you take away the rim presence, right? right. Because that's what he's really good at. Um, so that's something that I, I do think is interesting, but to bring it all back together, it's not like, hey, we took him away defensively and then putting him on the perimeter now, but he gives us nothing offensively. So he, there's, he's absolutely a liability. He's competent enough uh, offensively to give you something there on the floor. I just don't think we'll be running our offense mainly through him like we did with zero last year. Jamie and break that really was kind of the best version of Ole Miss at times last year, particularly when it became pretty evident that like the, no one was really going to be able to create their own shot, particularly getting toward 
the basket north and south from the perimeter. Ole Miss seemed like some, a lot of times, for particularly through that late January, early February stretch, where Ole Miss played well, playing through Hamela was the best they had. I don't think Kermit necessarily wants to have that again because, as we outlined at the top, that was you mentioned it when you uh, kind of in the first thing you said, but that times that would, that made for a tough product to watch. And I thought Ramel was a great player, but man, that team struggled to, to, they had to play a certain way offensively and the margin of error was so slim. And I think this team, ideally, if kind of what they've done from a recruiting standpoint and reshaping the roster, will have a little bit bigger margin for error. what do you think of Breakfield tonight? Just from initial, initial things you saw, what you thought about him coming and he was a difficult guy to evaluate at Duke, just from the way his year went last year, weird COVID year, seemed like he played a de- decent amount in the beginning, then sort of fell off. Yeah. Um, it was about what I thought it would be, right? Like he makes the three and like he's, I know that's always there enough to where opponents have to respect. It looks comfortable enough on the perimeter. Give me kind of your evaluation of him and, and kind of the best and worst version of him and what he does well and maybe doesn't. Yeah, so I thought for Breakfield tonight, and uh, the transfer portal is so funny because, like, I remember all of us watching him at Duke last year being like, hope he has a good game because he's going to be on our team next year, right? Like, <laughs> And there's, like, no secret about it either. But, um, you know, for Breakfield last, uh, tonight, I think he's, he actually started off a little slow in my mind, but he has kind of got an old man smooth, like, kind of, slow but very mechanical kind of game um my comp for him is almost like a, and he, he's not this talented but he's got a little trend in Watford to his game in my opinion and it what I'm really curious about with him as the season goes on and how Kermit likes his guard scoring from the wings a lot is is this a guy that we ever could run at point forward because we don't have just a ton of true point guards on this roster so is this a guy that could go in there, he kind of drives on you, put his hips on you, um, it, back to the basket. I, I wonder if he could run some point forward. But tonight he gave 17 good minutes, you know, four of seven shooting with 10 points, uh, three rebounds as well. So kind of right as expected for him. Um, you know, a lot of people coming into this year hearing he's a five-star, you know, I would, I would say probably pump the brakes on like thinking this is a – he's going to go to the NBA next year, be an all conference player, but he's definitely going to be a good four and one of the best fours that we've had, um, you know, in, in, in quite some time. If you look at a lot of Ole Miss teams that go to the tournament uh, historically, you know, in the modern era, they've all had good four men on their team. Think about Murphy, think about MJ rep, think about some of those, you know, Rod, Rod Barnes teams. So, um, you know, for him, having a good four there that also could probably play other positions, I think is really big for this team. I was about to ask how much four and versus anything else. I imagine they don't want too many minutes with him at the five, but at least from a size standpoint, he, they could survive it. But if Robert Allen is okay, then I'm not sure how much you would need it. Yeah. I mean, the thing there is <laughs> if you have him and Robert Allen in the game and you go five out, like who really is the five and it's not really either of them. Right. Cause you're positionless matter. and then Breakfield's the shooter there that's extending the floor. Um, so you don't have somebody unless you put like a Ty Fagan or uh, a Luis at the four who then you kind of can bust that open a little bit as well, but neither of them are great perimeter shooters. So yeah, it's interesting to see, um, you know, I'll, I'll be interested to see, 
won all position breakfield plays this year. I think the majority of those when the year ends will be at the poor spot, though. Ty Fagan, for people that follow college basketball during the season, or Ole Miss basketball, I should say, during the season, and then kind of have a decent, I don't know, I'd say loose handle recruiting was an interesting take. It wasn't something that necessarily moved the needle, given what his, I guess, numbers were on paper. It was, I was trying to figure out what they saw and what they were looking for. And then tonight, pretty, I mean, not pretty efficient. He goes 10 points, four or five shooting, made the only two threes he looked at. What is he as a player? And when they took him, what do you think they were envisioning him being? Yeah, I think when they took him, it was kind of a best available, right? And, okay. and sometimes you, you've got to take those guys. Um, tonight, I thought he played a really good game, but I don't think his stats were indicative of who he is as a player. Um, he's, he, I don't think he's a guy that's going to just be taking a ton of three-pointers this year. Uh, my comp for him is a – more intelligent, less bulkier, like Martavius Newby. I think okay. that he's going to score a little bit more around the rim, but uh, he'll, he'll go in, he'll rebound pretty well. He's a pretty decent uh, defensive player. But, you, you know, like the high school, every high school team has like that four or five man that just goes in and gets trash buckets. And that's how they score. And that's kind of him as a three man. Uh, he goes in and gets some buckets around the rim. Uh, but he looked polished tonight. And if he can turn into being a average, you know, perimeter shooter, that would be a big thing for this team. Luis Rodriguez, good defender, athletic, had a couple of moments tonight where he looked a little bit more polished, kind of going to the rim and being around the rim. Is this someone that and this has nothing to do with tonight? Is this someone do you think they're banking on to put on the other team's best defender night after night and kind of not? Not not having to worry about it, but knowing who's going to be on that guy, barring foul trouble for, you know, what, 28 minutes of a 40-minute game? Yeah. That's what this team needs him to be. They need him to be the guy that can go take a, you know, one to almost four man out of the game. Um, we've seen it at times over his career at Ole Miss where he's been able to do that. To, to go take a guy that averages, you know, 18 to 20 a game and keep them to 12. That's another thing that would be huge for this team. Um, I, I think that this team is going to be a good defensive team, just like last year. I think you probably got a little bit better in the front court with switching Brooks out for Romello. You may take a little bit of a step back um, switching out like a Schuler for a Ruffin this year. Right. But I think this is going to be, a, you know, a good, a good defensive team. And, when these scenarios come about where you don't want to get in track meets with some of these super athletic SEC teams, it's going to be super important. Every possession is going to matter for uh, Luis to be able to decrease somebody's, you know, points per game average um, as well. So, yeah, I definitely think that that's what they want his identity to be. What do you think his ceiling is offensively? Um. You know, I think his ceiling offensively is, you know, maybe 10, 11 points a game. Um, he, he just hasn't he, – he's, he's shown capability and, and competence, but he, he hasn't shown flashes outside of, you know, driving and transition at times um, to really be a next-level scorer. He's super athletic. But um, I don't think his ceiling's super high there. And I think the one thing that's important to note for him is – 
not to get out of his identity and not to get out of his role too much to kind of stay within uh, his realms of being a guy that can defend, that can rebound, but also be a, you know, a competent offensive guy that can go score and transition and get some easy buckets. Probably uh, indictment on me that it took too long. I took this long to get to him, but Jarkel Joyner, a guy that seemed that yep. seemingly really hit his stride towards the end of last season from an offensive standpoint, started figuring out maybe, I don't know. Do you think there was an adjustment in terms of him realizing the quickness of defenders that he was playing in whatever league Baker's filled in versus the SEC? Ole Miss, as we've outlined a couple of times already, wasn't necessarily overly dynamic at all in terms of guys getting downhill and getting to the rim. But it seemed like he got a little bit smarter with what he was. I think you saw that a little bit tonight and not in it, particularly at times last year where he was – I don't know, quick enough to kind of get back and do the, I guess, the, the 15 foot step back thing and then kind yeah. of be a little bit of a mixed bag from that or whether he takes it all the way to the rim. Uh, whatever his stat line was tonight, just from a formality standpoint, yeah. he ends up with 12 points, five and nine shooting, didn't get to the free throw line. It, just looking at him this year, what are you looking for in terms of one, two, however many things it is that you think he needs to improve offensively to become the, you know, 13 to 17 point a game guy that would be a hell of a one potentially leading scorer or a nice compliment if Ruffin or some of these, one of these other guards turns into a pretty decent volume scorer. Like what's your outlook on what he needs to improve on this year to continue what he did over the last, what, nine to 12 games last year, you'd say? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, he finished very strong last year. I think for Joyner, the big thing is um, he did not shoot great from the perimeter last year. He went two for four tonight, looked pretty good uh, from three. He needs to be a perimeter shot taker more than he was last year. And if he can just be competent from a th- uh, the perimeter – people are going to have to start guarding him differently. I think the scouting report was out on him last year and it made him very easy to guard. And it it kind of wraps into my second point. He would do the one dribble step back, which at times drove me crazy just because analytically that's not what you're supposed to be doing in today's day and age. But I do think from the, uh, the wings at times, he would beat people off the dribble and then go into that one dribble step back when he had opportunities to go get an easier bucket around the rim, what I would actually like to see from him this year is not only that, but this team outside of Ruffin has got to have somebody that can beat some uh, the defenders off the dribble from the top, from, from the point guard spot, beating people off the dribble, um, you know, making two guard one and finding an open defender and, or open uh, offensive guy as well. And, they, they haven't had that in the past. I don't think Jarkel did that enough. Uh, you know, I don't know for him what that looks like this year, but if they can have somebody outside of Ruffin that can go and beat somebody at the top of the floor off the dribble, that would be huge. Um, I think Jarkel is probably going to lead the team in scoring this year. Um, if he looks anything like he did the last 10 games last year, you know, that's Ole Miss is going to be, you know, in a really good spot with him. Um, he's a really good player. Um, and tonight I thought he had a quiet game, a quiet 12 points. It kind of seemed like, um, so he had a quiet 12 and two from four from the three would love to see that, you know, keep up. Matthew Morell kid last year at the time when they landed him highest rated kid, 
that Ole Miss had ever signed. Struggled as a freshman. Seemed like he struggled with his shot, and that affected his confidence a little bit. Chase and I used to play this game, particularly with baseball, where, it, like, in February, it would be, give me this guy's numbers, and I could probably give you a decent idea of what this team did in April. And more times <laughs> than not, it proved true. I think the number one pick is the guy we just talked about is Joyner, because if he's not the lead team's leading scorer, then you're kind of looking around being like, well, what exactly is this team going to do for points, particularly, you know, in the last four minutes of games when the game gets bogged down. But I'm not so sure that Matthew Morrell wouldn't be a pretty decent second pick. What what do you see if Ole Miss is going to be good or if they aren't going to be good, what do you think he will be for this team this year? Well, I think uh, kind of pointing back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this, them trying to run and transition and playing at a faster tempo this year will benefit him more than anybody. Um, because he can score in transition, and I think it'll get him going in the half court as well. He is a guy that's too stiff from a straight-line drive standpoint. Um, he's got to work on beating people off the dribble. And for him, you know, we – out of high school, we knew that he could shoot better than he did last year. So he's got to be a competent shooter as well. Um, you know, if he's a guy that at the end of the season we looked and was averaging, you know, 12 or so a game, uh, you feel pretty decent about – you know, where this team landed. Um, but he's got to get some easy bu- – it, it seems like for him from a mental standpoint, he's got to get some easy buckets going early um, to get some confidence in that shot and then got to get more out of him off the bounce. He's, he's got to be able to beat people off the dribble because in his career, not only ha- have we not seen it against the SEC teams, but even against some of the teams like a UNO or uh, Charleston Southern as well, he struggled with it. Part of the reason they had to play through Romello White last year is two things we outlined, the dribble drive thing, but also the fact that, and these two things probably compound each other a little bit when you talk about making two guard one. Well, this was a bad perimeter shooting team. You could probably go as far as terrible. I think they finished last or second to last in the Southeastern Conference at three-point percentage. When they're clearly they're to some degree trying to rectify that issue this year, how do you see that playing out? Do you think – because I can't find it right now. Do you think there's a guy that ends up shooting 40% from three-point range this year? Or do you think it's the collection of Crowley, Joyner, Morrell, Ruffin, throw anyone in there, Breakfield occasionally, even though there won't be as many in there, all just being slightly better collectively type of thing? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think they fix their needs in the portal um, enough to have a 40% guy this year. Um, being somebody being in the upper thirties would almost feel like a win at this point. Um, I, you know, Breakfield's a guy that, you know, they didn't have something like that last year, though. He's, I mean, he's not an elite perimeter shooter, but he, he can do that. It's in his bag. Um, you know, I think for them, they did a really good job in the portal with Breakfield Brooks and Ty Fagan. Um, but the consensus was, Hey, they probably needed to go get another perimeter guy as well. Skill development can do a lot. So hopefully, you know, some of these guys can increase. And if they go from 30% to 34% from the three-point percentage this year, that could be a huge deal. Uh, But just knowing the persona and identity, you don't have a lot of guys that their identity is being perimeter shooters on this team uh, right now. That kind of sums up tonight. There's nothing much in the box score that stood out. I mean, Ole Miss had some pretty – I mean, that, it seemed like they had a few lapses in transition defense, but out, outside of that, it seemed pretty 
pretty run-of-the-mill in terms of how you would expect them to beat an inferior opponent, although that's a New Orleans team. I was just looking it up earlier this afternoon, curious, because I uh, did not watch a lot of privateers basketball last year. That's a second <laughs> in the Southland Conference, so they'll have a puncher's crack at making the NCAA tournament after, you know, over five days in March. I mean, whatever that kid's name was, they ended up with 21. St. Hilary is a decent St. Hilary, yeah. Like, he's kind of going to be a handful. That wasn't a terrible team. Yeah, they weren't great. Um, I was a little surprised after watching them play that they would be second. Um, by the way, did you see their coaches' attire? Like, did you take any glimpse of, at their coaches at all? It just, just they just they went back they to the suits. Well, they they went back to the suits, but they, it didn't look like. It didn't look like college basketball coaches. I'll have to send you some pictures. It looked like just, the office. Uh, to me, from head yes. coach, couple guys, it looked like the crew from the office inherited a team and was like, let's do this against the warehouse guys. Yes, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, but, yeah, they're all right. I mean, I think they're like you know, Ken Palm 300, uh, which is not great. <laughs> Southland Conference, is, South Conference is, uh, is not great. I mean, look, I, you know, there's, there's some games on this non-conference schedule that are – not super challenging, and this is one of them. But the result that you got at the end of the day is about is about what you'd expect. Um, and a good assist to turnover ratio. I think Kerm would have wanted them to dominate the the boards a little bit more. But um, after a slow start, the first ten minutes, I thought that they finished the back thirty um, about how you would have thought they would. How much do you think we'll learn about this group in non conference play? Because they go to what is it, Charleston in like a week or so? I guess that's technically that's next week, right? You play the Friday game, you go to Charleston. You're going to get a Marquette team that, at least in the preseason, people were not high on. Do you remember Shaka yeah. Smart's taking that job? I think they were projected as a bottom three team and what is, should be a pretty good Big East. And then you'll yeah. presumably get West Virginia, I think. Well, actually, no, not presumably. Ole Miss would have to beat Marquette. And then you would yeah. presumably get West Virginia, unless there's something I don't know a ton about Elon. That would be a chance for Ole Miss to notch a signature win if you can get by Marquette because, what, that's a West Virginia team that was top four or five in a pretty good Big 12. Like, that's a team that returns seemingly on paper a decent bit from last year. And then I think, obviously, the biggest marquee game would be Memphis, and then you got a sneaky Dayton team in there, and that really kind of is about it from a non-conference other than – I don't know. What's Rick Spansberry got cooking? He comes to Oxford Saturday, December 11th. Is that something to be worried about? Well, actually, I think that game's in Atlanta. It's like some hoop test. Oh, like good call. That is in deal. Atlanta on a Saturday night. Yeah. So, Stansbury, I think his team is projected third or fourth in the Conference USA. Um, they lost their big man to the uh, the draft this year, who was a really good player for them. He always reloads, as Jeff Goodman uh, always says, you know, smart money on Rick Stansbury when it comes to recruiting. Uh, he... he He's got that thing figured out somehow wherever he goes. But, no, I mean, look, there's some games here um, that are not super challenging. Uh, middle has just fallen off since Kerm left. I mean, it's a it's borderline a disaster. Demencio Vaughn actually returning back to Oxford. A little storyline for you there, Rippy, on November the 30th. He transferred back to Ryder. Yeah, I think you're – are you on mute? Yeah, sorry, I was on mute there. I can't even work my own podcast. Back to Ryder, right? (laughs) Yeah, back to Ryder. So, there's some interesting matchups there. Um, I think Mississippi Valley State is actually ranked the worst team in college basketball, if I have that correct, out of all of them. So, there's some interesting ones. But, you know, Memphis is super talented. And, 
you know, Penny, people, you know, people have their opinions about him from a coaching standpoint. I get it. But historically under them, he's been pretty good defensively. So seeing two good defensive teams um, in Oxford play each other, if we can get past Marquette, who I think will actually be favored against, um, Hogs play, his teams play hard as hell. So that'll be a good early uh, game for us here in about a week and a half. So I think there's some interesting matchups on the board. Um, compared to the rest of the SEC, I think it's one of the bottom four from a strength of schedule standpoint. But, you know, still, I mean, some pretty brutal matchups in here. Um, and I think that speaks more to how hard the conference is scheduling uh, these days. That was the last thing I was going to get to you with is it's particularly top 10, a top seven ish. It's a really, really good SEC. And I think if I have the preseason poll, right, which means nothing because the to people that vote on this, I would know as someone at the, at the time that has done that before, no one has watched anyone and no one has kept up outside of Jerry Tipton and two of the Kentucky guys and maybe Florida or someone who specializes in basketball at Florida or Arkansas, or I guess Tennessee, you could throw in that mix too. But point being, I think they think I feel pretty good about seven teams. And if I'm not mistaken, Ole Miss and State were eight and nine. I don't can't remember which order, which is kind of feels about right. Like, right, if this team is the best version of itself, it could probably be a tournament team. But if it's not, then one, it probably will either finish ninth or worse and won't get in the NCAA tournament, probably be a mediocre to decent NIT team last year. Kind of give me just a quick 10,000-foot view of the SEC as I have Kentucky on over here on mute. Um, Alabama loaded. Arkansas is going to be good. The top four teams in this league are going to be strong as hell, and then who knows what to make yeah. of Auburn every year. Uh, this is a good conference, and Ole Miss will have its hands for for sure. No doubt, no doubt. And, you know, that's a you know such a bittersweet thing because it gives you a lot of opportunities to get into the tournament, but also it's – you know, cannibalization of its of the league itself. Um, you know, one thing that I would say to really look out for, um, Kentucky obviously last year had a really bad team. They've got a few transfers mixed in with five stars this year. And one thing that I don't think is getting talked about enough is you've had years where coaches lose guys to the NBA and you've had years where coaches lose guys to transfers. But we're just now starting to see like complete rosters flipped, like not half of them, but complete rosters flipped because of this transfer portal. And one thing I think that is going to be an advantage for Kentucky this year is Cal's been doing that for a decade now with these one and done guys having complete new teams. And so some of these uh, programs and, you know, Andy's an example of it. Um, they're the biggest question mark with them is like, how do you keep all these guys happy that are transfers and how do you keep that locker room together? And I think Cal will be one who benefits the most from that because he's got experience doing it for the past decade, having a completely new team in every year. Um, so I think they're going to be pretty good this year. Um, Alabama and Arkansas are going to be good. Kennedy Chandler looks awesome right now for, uh, Tennessee LSU's got a good team one of their best players is out for the year though so you know something to keep an eye on there and then you know you're right with state they're super talented I always have questions about Howland's teams offensively and how he can keep locker rooms together because um, they're probably a little bit better talent wise than Ole Miss but it's hey who can keep the locker room uh, together better between those two so it's a gauntlet it's a, a league that I think will probably get 
seven uh, teams in the tournament. And if they have a really good non-conference showing, maybe, maybe even an eight. One quick look at the back half of the league. Is there anyone that sits at that back half? It's clearly probably not Georgia or Vanderbilt. Is there someone in that back half? It could be Ole Miss or State, but just for the sake of the argument, anyone besides Ole Miss that kind of sticks out to you that that team could probably creep in or could may potentially creep in the top six that uh, I guess the writers that don't pay attention are sleeping on currently. Yeah. I mean, you know, outside of State and Ole Miss, I, I think you're right. I think Georgia's going to be bad. I think Vandy actually could be a hair better, but they, they were so, they've been so bad lately. Um, Missouri's taken a big step back. I'm not a huge believer in South Carolina, even though I love Frank. Um, A&M, you just, like, I I'm, never know with Buzz. I'm, you never know with Buzz. And I thought that was going to be such a success that I'm surprised it hasn't been. And he may come out here this year and be fifth or sixth in the FCC. He had a hell of a run two years ago there. So I think my sleeper pick would probably be AM just because with Buzz, you know, it can be kind of all over the place. Um, he, he's a really good, he's a really good coach. He is Bracken Ray. I'm looking forward to talking hoops with him throughout the course of the year. Um, we will be checking back in periodically throughout the non-conference season and then get on a bit of a regular schedule as the conference play season nears. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's good to have college hoops back with games in the stands. I appreciate the time, dude, and we will uh, chat up again soon. Yep, absolutely. Looking forward to the rest of the season. And that was Bracken Ray. Appreciate the insight he offers. We will be talking to him throughout the season. He will be the uh, Weldon of hoops or maybe Bra or uh, Weldon is the Bracken of football. But you get the point. We'll talk to them on Sundays throughout the basketball season, particularly when they get into conference play and then kind of mixed in throughout. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to talking hoops and wading through the season with uh, with my old pal there. All right, let's get to Travis Brown and bring this podcast home. Here's Travis Brown on Ole Miss A&M. A lot of different topics covered. Huge, huge weekend in Oxford coming. Uh, looking forward to watching this football game. All right, we now welcome on Travis L. Brown, A&M reporter, for the Eagle joined us in the preseason to talk some A&M and in a lot of ways, a lot of things have changed for Texas A&M since we spoke probably what I was I guess probably late July, early August, but in some ways they're sort of what we thought they were looking forward to diving into that and what is going to be a interesting game in Oxford, big weekend, obviously college game day, a lot of different stuff going on. I appreciate you joining us again, man. How are you? Of course. Can't complain. Just, uh, on the road back from some exciting high school volleyball action. So glad to talk a little bit of football, take up some time uh, on the highway here. Yeah, I know. I, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's gotta be gratifying that the biggest games of your week are already out of the way and you can wind down with the Texas A&M Ole Miss football game. Um, of course, being able to bounce both is just a uh, versatile, versatile reporting skills. I, and I, again, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, as we record this late on a Tuesday night. So let's kind of get right into it. Texas A&M has been a different team for the better part of pretty much a month now. I mean, hell, actually the month of the day, right? They beat Alabama on October 9th. Zach Calzada has been the quarter starting quarterback for the entire season. Haynes King, we actually spoke. I, 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 I don't know why I just now remember this. We actually spoke. The day before they announced Haynes King as the start, Haynes King as the starter, and I dropped the podcast like 15 minutes after the announcement, and then he hurts his ankle, and it becomes the Zach Calzada show. That's probably as good a place to start as any. 
What has been the difference with Zach Calzada in the last four weeks as opposed to the first five? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be uh, experience. It, you know, he came in uh, to that Colorado game uh, when Haynes King hurt his ankle, broke his ankle, and, uh, you know, was a little rusty just because of, um, you know, not necessarily expecting to be the guy. Uh, and every week beyond that was just another step in the progression of things slowing down for him, the playbook opening up for him a little bit more as uh, he gets more comfortable into the, the system. And I think it kind of reached a peak there during that uh, Alabama game where he went, you know, started the game off 10 for 10. His only blemish in that first half was an interception and uh, was the, the man there uh, keeping it within striking distance, keeping AM ahead uh, there at the end. And, and he's the, the thing that is the, the point of conversation about him in the last couple of weeks is his toughness because it was late in that uh, Alabama win that when he threw the touchdown pass to Anaya Smith, he took a shot to the left knee, uh, went down, had to be helped off the field. Everyone just was watching, thought, oh, this, this has got to be a, a torn ACL or something. This, he's, he's done. And the next thing you know, next year he's running back out on the field and the, the fans are loving it and cheering. And it was a stark – if you want to talk about that game as a microcosm, that's a stark contrast from the week before when he is taking a uh, – he took a safety at the end of the game when they, when they had a chance to drive down the field to beat Mississippi State. And he's walking off the field in tears and the message boards and Twitter are, are asking Jimbo to put in a, a walk-on uh, uh, freshman that doesn't have any experience. and. The next week they're chanting his name and cheering as he comes back out and leads them to victory. And then you fast forward, uh, he gets two more easy wins against Missouri and uh, South Carolina and fast forward uh, to last week when he looks like he, I mean, he did dislocate his shoulder and they had to pop it back up on the field uh, while after taking a hit while, while scrambling and then misses two plays and comes back and is throwing, throwing darts uh, after that. And so, it's almost kind of like uh, Zach Calzada has to sacrifice a limb to get an important win now, but uh, everyone is just raving about his toughness. What? So it, it's an interesting arc, as you just outlined, right? Because he comes in in the Colorado game, and I think his stat line, for someone that didn't start the game, and I know King got injured relatively early, but he, he was 18-38 in a 10-7 game. And I remember watching most of that game, and, I was like, okay, this wasn't great. And there's a couple of throws where you're like, oh, holy shit, like what is, what's going on here? But that's hard to fault him for, right? Because you go on and whatever you want to make of Colorado's environment, was that, that game was in the Denver Broncos stadium, wasn't it? Or did I make that up? Yeah. Yeah, was, it was, there was supposed to be a home and home with Colorado and A&M the last two years, but the last year got canceled because of COVID. So they just decided instead of renewing the home game uh, with, for, for in Kyle Field, they were just going to play the one, neutral site game uh this year okay that's what i thought and for whatever you want to think of pac-12 football it looked like a pretty wild environment so that's not a fair gauge to gave him all, gauge him off of and then he gets this tune-up against new mexico can't really gauge a ton off of that and then perhaps probably one of the not i wouldn't say one of the worst but a tough matchup with arkansas and dallas the next week because if there's a team that's pretty well suited from a front seven standpoint to kind of neutralize what is turned into a pretty good Texas A&M running game. It seems like now the offensive line has figured out 
it's Arkansas. And it seemed like that game, particularly with the way it went early and the defense gives up one explosive play and they get behind early in the game, you're relying on Calzada arm to kind of move you up and down the field and make a lot more crucial throws. And, you know, you're talking about what he's six and a half, seven quarters into that, into his starting experience into that game. And it didn't go well. The one that I'd like to hit on before we get to the Alabama part of it is the Mississippi state game. So he's already got an sec game of experience under his belt. Take me through his, I think Ole Miss played the same time this week. So I didn't see a ton of it, but like kind of take me through what the hell happened in that game. Because I think for this team as a whole, it's a weird storyline about, you know, potentially what could have been, but with Calzada, what did he struggle in and what changed from seven days later where he conceivably to this point played the game of his life? What happened in that state game? Yeah. You know, Calzada wasn't terrible in that Mississippi state game. The only thing that you can, I think, really fault him for was um, just just kind of throwing up a dud there at the end when they actually had a chance to march down with about two minutes left and uh, try to, to, to win that game and ends up taking a safety uh, to, at the end of the game to just go ahead and put the, the seal on it. Um, the Mississippi State game was actually, if you go back, more about a really, really terrible defensive game plan from Mike Elko. You know, the year before – they just did, and it's the same thing that LSU did against Mississippi State this year, and uh, I can't remember who they played but before that, 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 that ended up beating them, where they just, you know, rushed three, dropped eight, uh, you know, rushed three, dropped ten, or, 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 you know, dropped eight and rushed four, and, and just tried to keep everything in front with those uh, check downs and intermediate-level uh, passes, and – you know, Will Rogers said after the game that that's exactly what they did to them the year before and won. And they looked at the tape and said, okay, well, we can kind of scheme around that. And they actually did the exact same thing. And he said, well, it wasn't easy. It wasn't hard because they did the exact same thing. And the, the, the defensive backs were playing yards off the wide receivers. So it was just easy to kind of march down the field. And so while the offense wasn't great in that game, that was more of a just – absolute mistake of a game called plan uh, by Mike Elko that, that just gave them the entire field to work with and pass the round and made Will Rogers look like a, a Heisman candidate in that game. Um, and so I, I think that, that that doesn't necessarily explain the turnaround they had the next week. But I, I think if you want to look at that game, it had more to do with the defense. Now, as far as Zach Calzada, it, it came out of the blue. And I, I think just – probably having what Jimbo Fisher calls more saddle time, more experience, uh, getting in there and kind of uh, talking through some scenarios and, and getting maybe a little bit better game plan uh, tailored for him certainly helped. I think if I remember this right, they were, they got, did they get Caleb Chapman back? They got at least Chase Lane back for that game, which is one of AM starting wide receivers you know, through that stretch of Arkansas and New Mexico and Mississippi State, uh, they were without Chase Lane. They've been without Hez Jones, who's one of their was going to be one of their first string wide receivers the whole season. He's done for the year. And they were without Caleb Chapman, who's their big deep threat guy uh, for most of the beginning of the season and most of those few, first few games that Calzada had. And so he was basically working with a second string 
uh, wide receiver group. Now they rotate a lot of guys in and those guys were getting some reps, but it was, it was a pretty inexperienced wide receiver group as well. And so I think something that probably helped a little bit and has helped even past that Alabama game is getting these first string guys back like uh, Caleb Chapman, like um, uh, Chase Lane. And then there's been a little bit of a development with um, guys like Jalen Preston and, and a few of those wide receivers. So experience from Calzada, the game slowing down and a little bit more help from his uh, wide receiver group, I think could play a little bit in, into why his, his maturation and why things turned around for him so, so much in that short span of time. From a legacy standpoint, whatever happens with the future of his career, how is that altered by what happened in that Alabama game? Because I remember watching particularly the second half of that and it looking like a different human being playing quarterback for them. And then, of course, I mean, it's a massive win, right? I mean, that's why they paid you – know, whatever happens this year, I mean, in, on the heels of 11 or 10 in one season or 11 and one, whatever it was, like that's kind of why they gave Jimbo the contract and you beat Alabama in a game that was – not a fluke by any stretch of the imagination. And so as you kind of have this weird quarterback dynamic, presumably King will be healthy at some point. How do you think that changed Zach Calzada's legacy and how he's viewed at A&M? Well, I think, I mean, he, in, in a sense, he's reached a legendary status already. Cause if you go back and, and I don't have it in front of me, so I could get this wrong, but the, the, what, what the quarterbacks who have beaten Alabama in the last 10 years is, is I think, what it was a Jared Stenham, Bo Nix, uh, Bo Nix beat him, I, th- I believe. And then you got Joe Burrow. You have Johnny Manziel in 2012, and now you have Zach Calzada. I was I about to say the know, only other two you like, got into there is two Ole Miss guys, Bo Wallace and Chad Kelly. Yeah, yeah, and, and so um, I, you know, there, there. It's funny. One of our photographers. Uh, got a picture of him on the field after that Alabama game. And it, it was a, it was a deal that went around where, uh, you know, the, the, the fans rushed the field, the core rushed the field. And somehow through the mayhem of it all, he found himself with one of the core of cadets, little, you know, uh, kind of triangle looking hats on his head. And he, our photographer got this great picture of him kind of throwing up a peace sign kind of thing with his core of cadets hat on and a, goofy grin with all these people around him and it's just one of those pictures that you look at and as you see uh things around Kyle Fee- College Station and like the A&M hotel that has these big murals of you know football games and personalities 50 years ago you can just envision that picture in black and white hanging up somewhere as a mural in, in 50 years from now and it's funny to think about that as a guy who that was like his third start and he had been terrible the, 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 the two weeks before. And yet he kind of has this legendary status. And I think no matter what necessarily happens to the rest of his career, whether it's he's the guy and he's moving forward and he takes over for Haynes King or Haynes King comes back in and he goes back to number two, he will always have a little bit of legendary status. I kind of go back and before I came to AM, I was covering TCU. And it reminds me a lot of Bram Kohlhausen, who was the guy who stepped in and the only start, really the only playing time he ever had for TCU was in the uh, the, the, the Alamo Bowl in 2015, 2016, um, when Trayvon Boykin, who was the Heisman Trophy candidate, got arrested like the night before the game, and he had to step and play and ended up beating Oregon in that game. And he will forever be a legend, even though he played in one game uh, in TCU lore. And so I think that that kind of is how Zach Calzada will be remembered now moving forward it's going to be a an interesting competition when I, I don't 
foresee, even though I think most medical people I've talked to with the prognosis of what Haynes King injured, there was an expectation that he could potentially be back and come back sometime at around this point in the season. But I think once AM took those two losses, plus with Zach Calzada kind of continually trending upward, there's not necessarily a reason to rush him back per se, unless all of a sudden maybe you get, but even then, if you get in, if AM like Alabama takes another loss, AM gets them to the, 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 the conference title game for some reason, you don't really want to throw a guy who hasn't played in three months out there on a lame, you know, there's no reason to bring him back. So that's definitely going to be a conversation, something to look forward to uh, in, in fall spring practice and fall camp next year. But, but I think everyone is fully on board with Zach Calzada and certainly has endeared himself to the fan base by the, the punishment he's taken and still continues to come out of the field, even though he's pretty beat up. Yeah. You just nailed it. That was the next thing I was going to ask where, when King initially went down, I believe from, you know, following it somewhat loosely from what I'd read, it was like the tail end of October, early November, which is exactly where we're at now, which you kind of already answered it. There's really no point to bring him back now. I mean, there's three games left in the season. You are what you are. Like, honestly, putting like making a quarterback change, you know, barring, you know, if King had been an incumbent starter for a year and a half or something like that it would be different, but two guys that battled it out in August, it would make no sense to change back at this point. The other part of that, or actually we can put some closure on the quarterback thing as well. Jumping up like ahead, what do you see happening? Because it was seemed like a close ish battle, but everyone, I mean, every, every one of you guys that covered the program and I read a decent, I would say a decent breadth of coverage of it during the off season seemed like the nod went to Haynes King because his ability to, you know, extend plays with his feet. How do you see that playing out in the offseason? This is mostly just from my curiosity standpoint, because it's almost like, is there a scenario where you have quarterback competition 2.0 again? How do you think this will play out long-term or do you think someone leaves? Oh, I think it'll be quarterback competition 2.0 all over again through, at least through fall camp. Because You don't see that often either. That's fascinating. No, yeah, no. Well, you know, it was interesting because it's, it's actually really mirrors in some ways a, uh, what was it, AM's 2017 season, uh, Kevin Sumlin's last season, because you have a quarterback uh, a competition between Kellen Mond and Nick Starkle, um, and it's actually kind of exactly the same scenario where Kellen Mond is the true freshman, Nick Starkle is the red shirt, which is a lot like what happened with Haynes King and Zach Calzada. Now, in that situation, Nick Starkle uh, gets the nod, start 2017, they go out to UCLA, uh, and he breaks his ankle in almost the exact kind of same way. Kellen Mond comes in, uh, and they go through the season, most of the season up until the Auburn game, which was about this time of year uh, in that season. And they went ahead and benched Kellen Mond a, a couple of series into that game, brought Nick Starkle in, and uh, Nick Starkle finished out the season. And then you have another competition when Jimbo comes in here the, the year after that, and Jimbo goes with Kellen Mond. And, and Nick Starkle ends up transferring and then stays in the NCAA for like eight more years. And, you know, that's where they are with him. So it, it is in some ways really pretty similar to that. Now, I think both quarterbacks have a little bit more upside than they did in that quarterback competition. It was really only Kellen that came through. Well, you know, I, I say that, you know, both Kellen's in the NFL now and Nick Starkle has, has made some waves out at, at uh, San Jose State. So, 
we'll see. But yeah, I don't think there's any way to predict right now what that's going to look like because, uh, you know, if Zach, if Zach keeps winning games, you know, there's something to be said about a guy who can win games in the SEC. Uh, who, who knows? Who knows? That's, that's, that is a, that's going to be a, a big storyline for a long time to come. One of the things that's coincided with Zach Calzada playing better, ironically enough, outside of the Alabama game where it seemed like he put the team on his back because Alabama, what they run, A&M runs that night 27 times for 94 yards. They run for 283 against Missouri, just kind of sit on them. Same deal against South Carolina. They ran 53 times for 290 yards. They're really the one, in, you know, you can call A&M and, or excuse me, you can call Missouri and South Carolina. You know, they are what they are from a defensive standpoint. South Carolina really just overall talent. But last week, they run it 35 times for 217 yards against Auburn. Clearly, there's something clicking a little bit better with this Texas A&M running game. And I think this is probably one of the more important aspects of leading into this matchup with Ole Miss. Is Ole Miss has struggled to defend the run at times, particularly between the tackles this season. What has been different about the A&M running game, do you think, in the last month? It wasn't awful, clearly, like going in. But, you know, I guess the way I would – articulated is against state is 32 rushes for 162 yards against Arkansas is 23 for 121. It's not horrific numbers, but for a quarterback, that's not supposed to go out and win games for you with his arm. That's not exactly, uh, I would say a supportive run game or something you can lean on. What's been the difference the last month? Well, I, a couple of things. I think when they knew that Calzada was struggling, both uh, especially Arkansas Mississippi State a little bit stacked the box and, and, and played the run and forced him to pass a little bit. And like you look at the Arkansas game and, and Jimbo Fisher took a lot of criticism for this. Uh, Isaiah Spiller breaks off the 60 something yard touchdown run against Arkansas to bring it back within, I think a touchdown or, uh, or, or cut the deficit pretty significantly. And after that, they only actually ran the ball twice. And that touchdown was like midway through the third quarter. They threw the ball, the rest of the time. And, and, and so Jimbo said they stacked the box and the way that they did try to produce a running yards was through RPOs and the, the pass is what opened up. So um, that that's just kind of how that happened. But I, I think that they've had to, because Zach, Zach Calzada has gotten better, they've had to respect the pass a little bit more. And that's opened up a little bit more lanes for Isaiah Spiller and Devon H. who are both two, all, you know, all conference running backs, um, Isaiah Spiller, you can argue one of the best in the nation. The other part piece of that is for sure the offensive line, because they, they, they just didn't get settled through the first uh, four or five games of the season. They had an injury to Layden Robinson, their right guard that, that kept him out of two games. He got injured during the Colorado game and, and that just kind of shuffled things in a weird way. Uh, they had Kenyon green had played literally every position, but center, has played this this year and, and so they they finally in for the uh, Alabama game settled in on um Jameer Johnson at left tackle Kenyon Green at left guard Blake, uh, Blake Foster at at uh center uh Layden Robinson at right guard and uh Reuben Fothery uh at right tackle and um that's been made all the difference it's been a really cohesive group that has opened some really big holes at times for these running backs. And, and uh, I, I think that little bit of, of continuity 
has played a lot because you look at go back and watch Isaiah Spiller run in the Arkansas game and in the Mississippi State game. There was plenty of times where he got the ball and he had nowhere to go and he'd get brought down behind the line and he was slapping the dirt because he was frustrated and and he let his not in a out very outspoken way, but he certainly was telling his offensive line in the press conference afterwards that he was frustrated and that there needed to be a little more attention to detail. So I think a lot of it goes back to the offensive line because a chain and Spiller are two guys who, who, who can uh, make space and make holes and, and, and make cuts that, that open up space for themselves. But I mean, when there is literally no space, it, it does, I don't care who you are. It's, it's, it's not going to happen for you. And so that's been the, the biggest thing with the run game. Outside of Alabama, Spiller's been in the 20s over the last three games in terms of touches, and you mentioned the mystifying part of the Arkansas game, and I guess part of that was them falling behind, because that's a weird game, because Arkansas wasn't, like, dominating in a lot of statistical categories, but you had the big play, and they got up early on the scoreboard in a game that felt pretty quickly like it was going to be a defensive game, but, like, in your mind, what's the defense for only giving Spiller 16 carries in the Mississippi State game? Was that something that Jip Fisher took criticism for, too? Because uh, for someone who didn't get to watch a ton of that game, that just felt low, particularly from just a raw numbers standpoint and what he was doing. Yeah, and and if I remember right, again, I'm on the road, so I can't pull up the stats. But I think, I mean, AM was behind in that, too. And so they were having to throw a little bit to, to try to make up for some ground. Um, later in the game uh, Spiller he might have gotten a little bit banged up there's been some games he's been a little bit banged up and they've had to to go to to uh, um, a chain um, but but a chain is is every bit as good of a back as Spiller and and some of it's just riding the hot hand uh, too in some of these games and, and because they're both very 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 talented backs so I, I don't want to say yes Fisher was definitely criticized for play calling in the Mississippi state game. I, I don't want to say that a whole lot of it was getting away from Spiller. Um, but really there, the run game just wasn't there at all anyway, because of the offensive line. So they kind of sit on Auburn last week. Auburn couldn't do anything. They certainly couldn't run the football, which I think put the game in Bo Nix's hands. And it's like, well, Bo Nix kind of came back down to earth a little bit. Outside of a poor defensive game plan against Mississippi State, do you think this defense has been as good as advertised? I don't really hold Alabama scoring 38 points against them. Just, I don't know, you get into these marathon of college football games and the pace goes back and forth and there was some weird stuff in that game. I didn't think AM's defense was terrible by any means against Alabama. I mean, it never, it never felt like watching that game. They could, quote-unquote, couldn't get a stop. I didn't even think Alabama played that terribly other than a couple of instances, but do you think this defense this year has been as good as advertised outside of the Mississippi state game, or has there been something that has surprised you? Yeah. Once you move past the Mississippi state game, it's, it's, it might've even actually might even be better than what we thought it was going to be in some regards. Um, you know, yes, A&M gives up 30 plus points to Alabama in that game, but the reason they were able to jump out and get up, what was it? 21 to three early was because of, an interception and a fumble recovery. Right. And then I believe they get another interception late in the, in the first half to, to stall out another drive um, if I'm not mistaken. And, and so takeaways were, were huge in that game um, early. And that's, if it wasn't for those takeaways, they don't jump out early. And I don't think they necessarily win that game. So 
yes, defense was was stout there, and and it really has improved and gotten better since then. And you look at a guy, and I think one little microcosm of that is looking at defensive end Tyree Johnson, who in the last five games has recorded seven sacks and now leads the team. And that's even more impressive coming coming this last week against Auburn. Uh, he injured he injured his foot late in the South Carolina game. Came into the press conference with the boot on. Had the two weeks to recover because of the bye week, but then um, goes out and is only playing on third downs at AM's dime package uh, because he hasn't gotten back to fully 100% yet, but still manages to get two sacks. One of them is a strip sack early in the Auburn game uh, and puts him up to, to seven, and, and he's just just killing it. So that defensive front is elite that AM has. And that's, you want to talk, I know you talk about Auburn run game was non existent. You know, I, that was 100%. A and M just shutting down the run game because Tank Bigsby is a good running back. Bo Bo Nix can do stuff with his legs, even though I know people are are on and off on Bo Nix. That was just one hundred percent A and M's defense, um, absolutely excelling. The other thing that they've really improved on is open field tackling. I mean, they were lights out open field tackling. I think there was thirteen players that had uh, a solo tackle in the game, and most of them were multiple. Um, and so the open field tackling was just outstanding in the Auburn game. And it saved that, that, you know, it, it, it really shut them down. So I think you, you can go into the getting a little bit more push on the defensive front and those elite defensive front guys really showing out and open field tackling is, is what's been the improvement. No, I think you're exactly right because that's an Auburn run game that really gashed Ole Miss for the first 25 minutes the week before when Ole Miss went over there. And before we get a couple of things and get out of here for this old Miss game, <laughs> if AM wins this weekend and they do end up winning out, how, like, I know this is more of a fan thing, but do fans look at that Mississippi State game and just be like, what the hell? Because I can't help but think like you would look back, and I'm sure people within the program do it too, but obviously they can't like publicly state it, but you would be like, gosh, damn, like what could have been? Like if AM is able to win out, but Auburn doesn't lose the iron ball or whatever. Like, do you look back at that state game and just really kind of scratch your head? Like, do you, well, I guess, could you see that becoming a concrete moment in the Jimbo Fisher era per se? Um, Cause they're in the I don't see, the I don't West right now. Without yeah. Him. Yeah. I don't see them. I don't think it necessarily comes, becomes a, a concrete moment in the Jimbo Fisher. Now I think if, if, if that's probably strong, t- a great, what if yeah. would probably be a softer way to put that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think if they went out and Alabama wins out and A&M, but, but you got to think about it this way too. Yes. I think everyone will kind of go, man, what if, and, and that, that one really kind of smarted, but also I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. And it actually, the answer could be last year. I, again, I don't have it in front of me, but when has A&M finished second in the West? Because even the, in 2012, when when uh, Johnny beat Alabama, they still finished third in the West. That's and true. I'm trying to think, la- last year, last year did they finish third too? I would assume it was second because LSU yeah. sucked and Ole Miss wasn't yeah. good. Auburn wasn't good. But, th- but to your point, still well stated but, because that's a weird conference-only unprecedented COVID year. Like in terms of gauging where A&M's finished since they've joined the conference – even though that was a great year and they had a great football team, that's still kind of an outlier. So your point still stands in my opinion. Like, very, and, and, very everybody, and, and everybody rallied around that 2012 team as like the team that AM had. 
and they still, you know, and, and, and we'll go back and, and praise. And it's almost like that team can be celebrated like a conference championship team, but they finished third in the West. Yeah. They had a Heisman trophy winner, but they finished third in the West. And so I think that there is something to be said about continually potentially finishing second in the West. I think, I, I think they're, they're paying Jimbo enough not to finish second, but to finish first, but with the circumstances of a backup quarterback and your guy getting knocked out and, and everything that went on, I, I think it's not like it's a complete head scratcher and it's like, well, where did that come from? You, you can go back and say it was a bad defensive game plan. They had a, a, a quarterback in there who was still, who was not expecting to start and still kind of getting his, his feet wet. And, and it makes some sense on what happened there. Um, not to mention uh, that uh, Mike Leach just owns Kyle Field. Anyway, <laughs> even going back to the Texas Tech days, uh, he, he owns Kyle Field. So, um, yeah, you know, yes, there, there certainly will be a lot of fans who kind of, uh, you know, kick, the, kick some dirt and say, man, what, what could have been. But I, especially if they, if they went out, they, they probably, if they went out, they probably go to a New Year's Six Bowl game. You go to another New Year's Six Bowl game, I don't think anybody is is throwing their hands up and saying it was a wasted season because of that loss. Oh, yeah. No, they went out there. I mean, I, you could make an argument, depending on what Auburn does the rest of the way. That would be, I guess, barring Auburn winning the Iron Bowl. The winner of this game is kind of locked into New Year's Six, in my opinion. Uh, maybe the SEC doesn't get three in there, but I think that would be a very weird scenario. But, it, yeah, I think you're right. And so how do you think – like, what is the – kind of 10,000 foot mindset at this game, because looking at it from an old Miss perspective, they spent the last really from about the second quarter of the Tennessee game on, it felt like they were just trying to survive the month of October and to their credit, they kind of ran the ball. They ran the ball well and really just kind of bludgeoned an LSU team that showed up probably more than most thought they would, but just didn't really have it once they got off strip script from an offensive standpoint and had multiple opportunities to win the game at Auburn but just for so shorthanded, like Ole Miss has three receivers that are pretty good. And after that, it's kind of become a mess. And this is the first week you've heard the rumblings of Jonathan Mingo coming back, who I would say on a good day is their second option. But given what they're working with, that's a huge development. I have no idea if he'll play. I tend to doubt it. I still doubt his ability to come back this year. Maybe that's just me guessing, but Braylon Sanders, Ontario Drummond, their other two options, Sanders played last week, limited capacity. I think Drummond will give it a go this week. Ole Miss, point being, Ole Miss is an entirely different offense when they have two of those three's got, three guys out there, all three. How do you, like, in terms of what you've witnessed this week or heard from Jimbo and AM, like, how are they kind of viewing this game? Because Ole Miss offense is explosive at full strength, but when you're out those three guys and a couple offensive line issues, they've actually been fairly benign for the last two. Yeah, so I think, Jimbo and the players are, are very um, – they've, they've really shifted into one game at a time, one play at a time, coach speak, blah, blah, blah stuff. So it's hard to get necessarily a super good read on, on what their thoughts are other than Jimbo, you know, reemphasizing the fact that they're a good offensive team. Matt Corral's a good quarterback. Lane Kiffin's a good offensive mind, and, and it could be a, a trap game as much as anything else. I think the interesting part for me is kind of what we were talking about to start this thing off and how this matchup has changed in some ways changed drastically in some ways not changed at all from the last time we talked 
up until now, because I think the last time we talked, the conversation was the offense was going to be good, but I don't know about Ole Miss's defense. Right. And I think, I think that the thought of, from my perspective is I don't know much about AM secondary and is this defense going to be as good as it's thought of, but AM's offense is going to move the ball and it's going to be great. And so this could be the, this was the one game other than Alabama that I had circled that AM could really trip up on. And as I look at the matchup now, I'm not as uh, weary of this game for AM as I was because there's thing the, the, the two things that AM does well is stop the run and run the ball, at least as of late. And Ole Miss's run defense is not good right now. And a lot, like you said, a lot of what they've been able to do well lately is running the ball and kind of doing a little bit of old school SEC offense. And that's what our, uh, Auburn a little bit tried to do against A&M, and they just absolutely completely shut it down. Uh, so I, I think on paper, this game plays really, really well into A&M's strengths, at least as of late, because you go in and, and of course, no one's run defense is as bad as Missouri's, but you go into a game where you know the run defense isn't going to be good. A&M could have won that game running the ball just about every play because especially at the beginning of the game, I, I can't remember seeing chasms that big for Isaiah Spiller and Devon A. Chain to run through. And again, not going to be anywhere close to that against Ole Miss, but I think there is some confidence to be gained uh, when you know that it's a team that's reeling a little bit on that run defense, and that's a, a, a spot where A&M can impose their will a little bit. So from my analytical perspective on paper, this game doesn't, doesn't intrigue me as much as a potential trap because I think everything plays into A&M strengths pretty well. You, you can, you can uh, differ me. I'd be willing to hear your argument on that, but I, 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 I think – I think this this is in A&M's favor a decent amount. No, I think I'm, I'm in the exact, exact same line of thinking because what's been interesting is Ole Miss has had this banged-up receiving core is they ran the ball very well against LSU and they ran the ball very well against Arkansas the week after they lost Mingo. Decently well against Tennessee, but that's, remember, the weird game that seemingly no one watched. Like, I'm not going to get on the Corral-Heisman thing, but the man carried the ball 30 times as a quarterback in an offense that's not like one of those gimmicky offenses. and No one seemed to give a shit. But point being, after that, they struggled to run the football at Auburn, and they really struggled to run the ball against Liberty last week. Ole Miss ran it 28 times for 142 yards, and 70 of it came on run play where Jerry on Ely broke a long run and it has nothing to do with the running backs. Ole Miss, I, you could argue has the deepest running back room in the sec. They have three guys that they trust pretty much equally. Uh, it seems like, cause there's really no rhyme or reason how they use them every week, but they've been banged up on the interior offensive line. They lost Ben Brown for the year. who's a guard. And last week, their backup guard and the other guy that slid over kind of the secondary, I'd say backup guard, Neither one of them played really at all. I think partially that was precautionary, just being banged up, but that's just a guess. But I think that's contributed to that more than anything. And it affects Ole Miss's ability to kind of play at tempo, where you pop off the chunk run, get lined up, pop off and get, you know, 15, 16 cheap yards because the defense is so scrambling. And so coming into this, I think you're exactly right. I think it plays very well into AM's favor because AM is 
maybe including Alabama, the best front seven Ole Miss's face. And you're coming off their two worst games of the season in terms of running the football outside of maybe Alabama. I'd have to go back and look at the stats. So I think it does play well. Ole Miss, their defense has been better, and they're about as healthy as you could be at this time of the year. But the way the 3-2-6 has looked, and you play a run running game with the pulse, it still hasn't been great. They were better in the second half against Auburn, but Auburn got pretty vanilla. So, no, I don't really have a rebuttal. I think this plays into A&M's hands from a matchup perspective pretty well. The one equalizer to me is that to Kiffin and Jeff Levy's credit, they've been able to scheme up the run game in terms of just kind of fine yardage despite not being great on the interior. So if Ole Miss is able to run the ball well, particularly early in the game, I think that could level it pretty well. But to your point, I don't know how they stop it on the other side, even if they're running with so much success. So I'm curious to see how this plays out. I think Ole Miss's margin for victory in this game is much narrower than A&M's, to put it that way. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think – I think Mike Elko is a defensive, I mean, gene guru, and he, he is really good. But like the Mississippi State game, he, every now and then he's prone just to get out coached in the game. And I see that that's about the, the only way that Ole Miss uh, increases that, that margin of error a little bit is just there is that potential for, for those minds to have a pretty good scheme up and just beat out uh, Elko on there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I see this as an A&M win. Um, definitely they cover the, what was it? One and a half point spread, but, uh, with it being in Oxford, you know, I give them a touchdown 10 points. Right. So like, it's a night game, like it's a night game late November. I mean, college game days there, not that it has any effect on the game, but it's going to be a decent, like a good atmosphere. Like, I mean, shit, like everything, as you know, at SEC on the road, like shit could get weird. Again, that would probably come down to AM turning the ball over, whether it's Calzada or an early fumble and Ole Miss kind of jumping out early. But I'm kind of in the same boat. Um, it's really all I had. Like, I'm not even – I'm not in the prediction business these days. Is there one particular thing you're fascinated to watch in this game before we get out of here? Yeah. I mean, I, I really will be interested to see how – if AM's run – offense can can be as dominant as it it potentially could be in this game you know the other thing too I go back and I think both times at least since I've been here that A&M has played in Oxford it's been a rainy sloppy rainy sloppy mess and so I don't exactly know what the weather report is no rain but it'll be colder than hell Oh, good. Well, I'll be sure to pack like 18 layers because I'm a Texan. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to, uh, to to see a game that isn't necessarily have have some of those issues with the right. Because I know last time they were there, they were still going through John Plumbing Riss and or whatever his name was, and and Matt Corral, and neither one of them really could throw the ball. Uh, but they were having to try too late in the game, and it was pouring down rain and just a, a silly, silly game. And so it'll be fun to see that. And it'll just be fun to see Kiffin going up against Jimbo and, and Elko uh, because they, we didn't get that last year because of, uh, of COVID. So first time getting to see that, that regime against A&M, uh, I think there'll be a lot of fun uh, in those matchups. Watch the coaching matchups there. 
He is Travis Brown, Texas A&M reporter for the Eagle. Man, I appreciate the time as always and safe travels to Oxford. And uh, I think this should be a fun one. Sounds good. Thanks, man. All right. That is our show. Appreciate you making it to the end. If you're still here, hope you enjoyed the basketball football mix on Wednesday's show. Got a couple ideas in the works for Friday. May have Weldon back on. Weldon's headed to Vegas this weekend, so he won't be available in the normal Sunday slot. I'm probably not going to have a podcast from a blackjack table. I think he's going to a Raiders game out there or something like that. Um, But anyway, still working around on what we're going to do on the Sunday show, and then I think I'm going to have Weldon back on Monday night and kind of do like a double pot for the people. We'll kind of see how the game goes and see see what that is. But anyway, I think I'm going to have him on Friday, talk some more A&M stuff. But uh, be looking forward to that. Friday picks per usual and uh, a long Friday pod, hopefully to get you – well prepared for this weekend. Have a great Wednesday. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.